Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to do something with himself after his comprehensive exams. And this is the second episode on our mini-series on the history of coal. The first episode, we talked about how coal was formed in the Carboniferous era, uh, a geological period in which the continents of the Earth were low-lying, swampy, and full of weird seedless trees. These seedless trees then got trapped underwater, were buried in sediment, and turned into coal. We also talked a little bit about what coal actually is, a carbon-based rock that you can set on fire. This episode, we're going to be talking about coal before the Industrial Revolution, focusing on the 16th and 17th centuries in Britain. To understand why coal is so important to history, I want you to think about energy. And I don't mean this like the, you know, mysterious energy that people talk about in the, you know, crystal store down the street. This like new agey energy with vibrations and, you know, mystical senses. I'm talking about actual energy, about work, about the energy that physicists might study. So to think about this, I want you to think about your day and just think about everything you do and try to imagine how much energy you use to do it. So first, start off with your body itself. Your body is constantly burning energy. When you look at the back of you know, your cracker packet and it talks about how many calories that is, calorie is a unit of energy. And it means you're, you eat it and you can burn that much energy to feed your cells. We are warm-blooded mammals, which means that to stay alive, we need a certain amount of energy just to get our cells to boil at the, you know, right temperature. I did a little calculation myself, and me personally, I need 1,500 calories a day to keep up this heat. It's called the basic metabolic rate. More, I need more energy when I do more stuff, when I run, when I lift weights, when I worry, when I work hard, or when I'm cold. But we use more energy than that, of course. Most obviously is the electricity that you are using to actually listen to my voice. That's energy. Uh, there's electricity in your computer. There's energy in the gasoline in your car. There's energy in whatever it is that powers your mode of transport that you get to work, your subways or your bike. In the bucolic Midwestern wheat fields where your Nabisco crackers come from, the farmer will put in fertilizer first. Fertilizer is a kind of nitrogen compound that plants can actually use, and today it is most likely made through the Haber-Bosch process, a catalytic process that is driven by cheap energy. It takes energy to make those chemical bonds uh, to make the kind of nitrogen compound that your plants can actually eat. There's, of course, energy coming from the sun that makes the plants grow. There's energy that drives the wind that makes the kites fly up into the air when you go to the kite festival this Sunday. The world around us is teeming with energy, and we can put on our energy goggles and look at it and see how much energy people use and how that changes over time. One of the big stories of the history of the past three centuries is that people use more and more energy, and that this energy comes increasingly from fossil sources. In Europe, uh, just to take an example, 
annual per capita energy use went up from 23 gigajoules a year in 1800 to 138 gigajoules a year in 2007, uh, according to energyhistory.org. I crunched the numbers, and that amounts to about half a gigajoule per European per year. To put that into context, that is the amount of energy it would take to run a laptop computer every single day for an entire year. So let's think about the history of the world as a history of energy. Some historians divide societies up into two groups. Most societies are organic societies. They get most of their energy from sunlight. And all that matters really is the number of steps that it takes for this particular you know, bundle of energy to get from the sun and into the hands of people. So each square meter of earth gets about 400,000 kilocalories every single year through solar radiation. Now that is the source of all of the energy that people have used from you know, the dawn of humanity all up through the Roman Empire, through the rise of the Chinese Empire, through the Arabian Empire, through every single massive bit of history up until the Industrial Revolution. Most of the energy that people got was directly from this sun. But it's usually mediated through plants, and plants are actually a pretty inefficient converter of solar energy into energy that people can use. They transform only about 1% of their solar radiation into actual biomass. So in your Nabisco wheat fields, those wheat plants are only turning 1% of the available solar radiation into calories that might eventually be used by people. So how do people actually use this energy from the sun? Well, the most direct way is by eating it. We eat plants that have a good amount of calories in them. There are, of course, other less direct methods. Eating meat is a less direct method. We eat the cows and the pigs and the chickens who in turn eat the plants that get their energy from the sun. Another less direct method is by enlisting the actual energy of animals to do our work for us. Draft animals in uh, pre-modern times would pull the plows through the field. That's because the actual power of certain animals like oxen and horses is much greater than the power that human beings can actually use. Another really important way for people to enlist the energy of the sun is to burn plants. So before we have modern central heating, one of the ways that people actually warm their homes, which is necessary because it gets cold out there, is by cutting down trees and burning it. Historical energy economists had broken down uh, the distribution of energy use in early modern times, and they suggest that about 20 to 25% of humans' energy use is through fodder, through feed that feeds animals. Another 20 to 25% is from food, and a full 50 to 60% is fuel used for heating homes or making industrial processes. So this last one, burning trees, is incredibly important for the energy history of the world. Now, there's a tiny remainder, a tiny sliver of energy used in pre-modern times that's not from any of these sources. It's from harnessing wind energy or water energy. Now, this can be super important. Wind, of course, comes 
directly from the sun. It is created from uneven heating of the Earth's atmosphere. And the winds are central to the story of European colonization. It's knowledge of the wind cycles that allows Columbus and the other uh, European mariners to actually be able to keep on going to uh, North America over and over and over again. Another indirect way of using solar energy is through water power. Because we have streams and rivers running through our mountains, some people are able to harness this by building water mills to drive machinery or to grind grain or to pump water sometimes. But this accounts for only about 1% of the total energy used per society. This work of making all of this energy is dominating for the economies of the early modern world. These same energy historians have estimated that about 60 to 70 percent of economic output was aimed at providing or conserving energy. Just think about that. Six to seven people out of every 10 in the early modern world spent their days either making energy or preserving energy. But we don't live in that world anymore. We don't live in an organic society where most of our energy comes pretty directly from the sun. We live in a mineral society where most of our energy comes from rocks. Rocks that, you know, indirectly got their energy from the sun millions and millions of years ago. But still, the source of our energy has dramatically changed. And by following coal, we're going to be able to see this change in great detail. The story of coal does not begin with the Industrial Revolution. Coal has been used for thousands of years. In some places, especially in Britain, coal fields jut up out of the earth and you don't even really need to mine them. You can just pick up the coal straight out of the ground. Some of this coal is easy to burn. And so in these areas where there were prevalent coal sources, people often burned coal instead of wood to keep warm. It was used more often when populations rose and pressure was put on forest resources. So in Roman Britain, uh, populations were quite high and people started to use coal and ship it all across the empire. A enterprising archeologist has shown that in some places where coal was used in Roman Britain, it was shipped up to 80 kilometers away. That is a lot when you think that this coal actually had to be moved on the backs of people and horses and on boats. There's Roman descriptions of coal being burned at a British temple of Minerva is at an altar. Romans used coal for jewelry. The semi-precious stone jet is actually low-ranked coal that the Romans would polish and carve into rings and bracelets. Uh, Romans also made furniture from oil shale, the same kind of shale that uh, fracking is now used for. The Romans would dig it up and make furniture out of it. And polish it. But when Roman Britain stopped being Roman Britain and returned to just being Britain, the population decreased and coal use fell. Uh, by the time of the Norman invasion in 1066, coal was not really used much at all. In the Doomsday Book, this massive account of all of the economically worthwhile things in the Normans' new holdings, there is no mention of coal mines at all. 
which suggests to us that coal use was really negligible, that people really stopped burning it except in very small local situations. However, after the Normans invaded, the world started to warm up a bit in what's called the medieval climactic optimum. And when the world warms, uh, people start to multiply. There's more food, there's more plants. People started to push up against their forest resources and coal got back into general use. By the end of the 13th century, there was a mining operation in every single major coal field in Britain. This was not to last for very long because there was a little thing called the Black Death. A third of the population was wiped out and resources stopped being put under as much pressure and so coal did not need to be used. There is a pattern here. When there is a lower population, people don't burn coal. When the population in Britain rises, people stop being able to use as much wood and so turn to the smokier and grosser coal. This pattern happens everywhere where there are coal resources. But that doesn't explain this world that we live in now where everybody works on fossil fuel energy. To do that, we need to look at a specific moment in British history. After the Black Death, the British population climbed from about 2.75 million in 1530 to five and a quarter million in 1650. That's nearly double in a little over a century. And this cycle continued. As resources started to get strained, things got more expensive, people ate less, people got shorter, people started to work more marginal land, they cut down forests and replaced them with sheep runs or with wheat fields, and the forests started to constrict and wood was increasingly more expensive. Wood prices increased 400 times between the 1540s and the 1620s. The price of everything else increased only about 300 times. And you're probably saying, well, why should I care about wood prices in the 16th century? Well, wood was incredibly important. It was far more important than you might think. People used about two to three kilograms of wood every single day to heat their houses, to cook their food, and to work. That's about 6,000 to 9,000 calories every single day. That accounts for the vast bulk of human energy consumption even before the Industrial Revolution. A city of 10,000 people needed an estimated 30 to 50 carts of wood every single day. So when you imagine a city, when you imagine these buildings in the early modern world, those you know, beautiful German medieval towns, you have to imagine it slowly eating away at the forests nearby. And wood is expensive to haul. It's heavy, it's bulky, it's annoying. You don't just need any forest. You need forests close by. And people didn't just need wood to heat their houses. Only about half of wood was used for heating. Wood was used for tons of other things. It was used for building. Houses were made of wood. Tools were made of wood. Musical instruments were made of wood. Really importantly for Britain, ships were made of wood. The Royal Navy that protected the island of Britain was made from oaks. These are floating forests. 
Wood is also used for industrial processes. You need wood fires to boil beer, to dry malt, to make charcoal, to make iron. You need wood to boil alum, to uh, boil salt pans, to make salt. In 1615, there was a royal proclamation that said people could no longer cut trees that might be used to make ships. As people started to, you know, multiply, as wood resources started to get constrained by all of these different demands put upon it, some people in Britain turned again to coal. This is because there was coal everywhere in Britain. If you look at a map of Britain, you will see that tons of the places are settled over massive coal fields that were made in the Carboniferous era. Even better than that, these coal fields often are next to the ocean, which means that they can be shipped all across the coast uh, relatively cheaply. Those that are not on the ocean are often on navigable riverways, which means again that they can be taken to the places that need it. The coal fields in Britain were also really easy to exploit. Some of them were just literally on the crest of the earth. You didn't even need to dig to get to them. You could just pick it up and take it to wherever you needed it and then burn it. Uh, in other places, mines were simply burrowed into the ground. They weren't complicated at all. Mining coal in Britain was easy and there was always enough of it to go around. Coal supply always met or exceeded demand even as it was increasing dramatically year after year after year. And as the population increased, as wood prices got higher and higher and higher, as people stopped being able to eat as much, as the limits of the organic economy were being reached, coal was increasing. Every year, from 1564 to 1685, the coasting trade, the trade of sea coal around the coast increased 2.3%. The amount of coal shipped from Northumberland and Durham increased 14 times in the 140 years before 1600. London in particular became a coal city. London grew massively in the 17th century and became the biggest city in the world, the biggest city that the world had ever seen, and it heated itself not by wood, but by coal. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of how this happened, I want to insist that this switch from wood to coal was incredibly local. It had to do with local trends of where the forests were and where the coal was coming from. For example, let's take the two big university towns, Oxford and Cambridge. Cambridge switched from wood to coal before the 16th century. It's on marshy Fenland, and it reached the limits of its forest resources relatively early, and it had nearby coal fields that it could exploit. Oxford, however, did not shift before the 18th century. It had a ton of forests to go around, and it didn't have as easily accessible coal fields. So when we talk about the shift from wood to coal, we're talking about generalities. We're not talking about every single place in Britain. So there's one last thing to understand about why British people started to use more and more coal in the 16th and 17th centuries. There weren't just a ton more people around. It was also a lot colder. Between 1645 and 1715, we have a period of time known as the Little Ice Age. 
This is a time when the average annual temperature was about one to two degrees colder than it is now, and there were incredibly cold periods of time. The Thames, the big river that runs through London, often froze over during the winter, uh, froze over so much that people could go out and skate on the frozen river. They did more than skate. They had frost fairs where people would set up large stalls uh, selling goods and dancing and doing all the things that somebody would do at the fair. It was cold. Nobody really knows exactly the reason why, although there are a lot of uh, explanations. One explanation is that the sun just started to put out less energy. Uh, this is called the Maunder Minimum. There were fewer sunspots recorded, which suggests that the sun wasn't burning at the same intensity that it usually is. Another explanation is because of population decrease worldwide. Because of the European conquest of the Americas, there were far fewer people in South America. This decrease in population meant that there there were fewer people to cut down trees, and this meant that there were a lot more forests, and these forests trapped carbon dioxide in them, leading to less of a greenhouse effect and cooler temperatures. But I don't exactly know the reason why. I'm not a paleoclimatologist. I'm not equipped to be able to tell you why this happened. I am equipped to tell you what effect it had on the world. Even small decreases in temperature have massive effects on a society that is based on agriculture. A decline of one degree Celsius means a 10% decline in energy from solar radiation. That reduces the growing season. It reduces the activity of the microbes in the soil that can decompose things, which in turn means that soil fertility is reduced. It uh, pushes back the marginal frontier of cultivated land about 150 meters sea level. This is incredibly important when you think of all of the people who are farming more and more marginal land as populations increase. All those people who have farms in the hillsides that are just kind of doing okay, if the temperature drops, they are sunk. So in the Little Ice Age, the motor of the economy was not running as well. Everything runs on sunlight, and in the Little Ice Age, there was not enough sunlight to go around. We can see this in demographics. People were shorter because they could eat less. There was a decrease in the reproduction rate, an increase in migration as people kept on trying to find a place to farm and live. The charcoal price more than doubled between 1630 and 1680. Now, the problem was the sun was not giving enough energy. The solution that people found in Britain was to unlock the energy of the sun from 300 million years ago. The solution was to use the trapped energy in coal reserves. People start to switch from wood to coal when coal is about twice as cheap as wood is. It is messy to burn coal. Coal is sooty, it's dirty, it smells bad, it produces an acrid black smoke often. Wood is much nicer. 
And also coal requires people to use different kinds of hearths and fireplaces. Uh, for a wood hearth, you just pile a bunch of wood in the center of a room, you have a chimney at the very top, you light it on fire, and there you go. Bob's your uncle, you have heat. Coal is much more temperamental. If you run a coal fire in that same sort of hearth, the thick and heavy coal smoke will cling to the bottom of the room and make everything unconscionably smoky. To have a proper coal fire, you need a much shorter chimney so that the heavier air can escape, and also you ideally need to make a special kind of grate so that the smoke passes through burning coal so that that sooty smoke can actually be burned. And all of that takes trial and error, it takes rebuilding hearths, it's difficult. But it started to happen because wood prices got so high. Between 1550 and 1680, there was a 14 times increase in coal production in Britain. In 1550, about 2,200 tons of coal were produced in Britain every year. In 1680, it was nearly 3 million. What did that mean for people's lives? Well, there were a lot more coal miners. Mining was a traditionally male job, a job that was stubborn and independent. The men worked underground where it was hard for them to be managed. Uh, and being a, a, a coal hewer, the person who actually sits there, lays down in the coal shaft and chisels away at the wall of rock to unleash the giant, you know, massive coal, was an incredibly highly skilled job. A poor coal hewer could could destroy a seam. Even worse, a poor coal hewer could cause a cave-in and kill himself and destroy an entire mining operation. And so these coal hewers, these coal mine workers, were in high demand, they were highly skilled, and they resisted management. And coal mining was dangerous. These miners who would descend beneath the crust of the earth and go back in geological time etching out layer upon layer upon layer of the Earth's strata to get to the Carboniferous era and get all of those old plants out, they faced a lot of danger. One was called choke damp, and that is as they burrowed beneath the Earth, they would unleash the gases that had been produced by the incomplete decomposition of the plants from the Carboniferous era. And those gases, mostly carbon dioxide, would choke out the air, and it would kill people. It would concuss people. People would be walking down the coal mines, hewing, and then they would pass out and suffocate. Another, perhaps even scarier, atmospheric condition was called fire damp. And this is when the methane gas trapped like little carbonated bubbles in the actual rock would be released as people would chip away at it. And the methane gas would seep out, and it didn't smell like methane gas that you have in your Bunsen burners, remember. That smells because it has an added chemical to it. It smells like nothing. And this methane gas would come into contact with people's candles, and it would explode. Certain mines were known as particularly fiery mines because the coal miners would explode every once in a while because there was a lot of methane underneath there. 
And once the coal was mined, it had to be hauled over to ships where it was taken over to cities. And in the cities, coal became a female job. The job of hauling coal from market over to the household and then from actually tending to the coal fires and carrying the coal up and down the stairs was a job that was done by domestic servants. And domestic servants, by and large, were women. And also coal had an age component to it. These new kinds of chimneys that developed to actually burn coal smoke properly required a new group of laborers, a chimney sweep. Young boys would scamper down the chimneys to clear up all of the gross coal smut. And this, these were children. By 1615, there were already at least 200 chimney sweeps in London, and there would be increasingly more. I don't have to tell you that this was an incredibly dangerous job, that most of the chimney sweeps did not make it past 18, that they died either through some kind of weird lung disease that you got from spending most of your working hours in a chimney, or they fell, or they starved to death. And coal was not magically a solution that solved everybody's problems. It was unpleasant to use. It did not smell like wood smoke. It smelled bad. People were always complaining about the smoke that their coal made. In the 18th century, for example, James Woodford, the diarist, was constantly complaining because his coal fireplace in his study just wouldn't work right, and it would always smoke up, it would ruin his books, it would make him cough, he'd have to leave the room. He kept on building and rebuilding his hearth in that study over and over again, and even by the time he died, he still hadn't figured out how to make it work. Think of it like wireless reception today. My cell phone never works, it's incredibly annoying. That is like smoke in 17th and 18th century Britain. There was even a job called a smoke doctor, and a smoke doctor would go to particular people's houses and try to figure out what was making their chimney so smoky. The high sulfur content of the bituminous coal that was common in Britain meant that the smoke was black and acrid. It meant that when it came into contact with water, it turned into sulfuric acid. And this sulfuric acid would rain down on the limestone buildings and convert the limestone to gypsum, which would break and crack the stone itself, that would suck up the water and destroy the very edifice of the buildings in all of the British cities that used coal. Because of the novelty of coal smoke, people in the 17th century started to notice that their environment changed. People talked about how in cities, flowers that used to be grown, like anemone, could no longer be grown because of the coal smoke. Gardeners wrote special books talking about what kinds of crops were actually hardy enough to survive in the smoky urban environment. So here, at the edge of the 18th century, we have a small island off the coast of Eurasia that starts to use stones to heat houses. If that were the only thing that coal could do, then we would not have had an industrial revolution. We would not change from the organic economy of the past to the mineral economy of today. To make that shift, coal needed to be used to make stuff. We usually identify that change with the Industrial Revolution, a wave of gadgets in the 18th century that allowed people to do things at a much more efficient rate. But 
Coal was used to produce stuff even before then. It was used particularly in industries that were really hungry for energy. Uh, for example, salt pans needed to be boiled. People would get salt water from the ocean, put them in shallow pans, and heat them with wood so that it would boil down and turn into salt. Very quickly, this was replaced with coal, at least by the uh, 16th century. By 1700, about 200,000 tons of coal were burnt every year to make salt. Brewers were notoriously energy-hungry. Uh, by the late 16th century, wood accounted in some places for a full quarter of the cost of brewing beer. And because of this, brewers started to shift very quickly to coal. To make beer, you need to boil water and then cool water many times. You also need heat to dry the malt uh, that's put into beer. And people complained. In 1578, a London brewer was arrested for polluting the air, for burning too much coal. The company of brewers at that time agreed that only wood should be used to brew beer near the palace of the queen because the queen was so bothered by the coal smoke. Coal was used in making soap, in making alum, which is a, a mordant, a dye fixative that's central in textile production. It was used to make clay pipes, clay tiles, bricks. It was used to boil uh, pigeon excrement and turn it into gunpowder. It was used to boil sugar. It was used to make starch. It was used for candles. It was used for forging, but not smelting iron. It was used to make lime, which is incredibly important, not like the limes that come on the tree, but rather calcium oxide, the thing that comes when you burn limestone. Calcium oxide is used uh, to plaster things white, it's used as a cement, and increasingly it was used in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries to make soil less acidic. People would lime their soils uh, because over a third of the agricultural land in Britain is too acidic, and putting lime in it can drastically increase crop production. But burning limestone is incredibly energy intensive, and the lime burners quickly turned to using coal. So here we are at the very precipice of the Industrial Revolution. And how did we get here? Because of population growth and shocks of the Little Ice Age, a small island off of the coast of Europe has started to burn black rock from the Carboniferous era for fuel, first for some industrial processes, then to heat their houses. And within 200 years, this black rock will spread. It will spread all around the world. It will create a new kind of economy, one that will puzzle the greatest thinkers of its time. It will make factories. It will make international divisions of labor. It will make things cheaper than ever before. It will pollute the air. It will destroy the very buildings of the center of British life, London. It will spur the creation of capitalism. It will allow world population to double, then double again, then double still more. It will allow us to jump across the constraints that have been pressing upon humans as a species for the entire history of mankind. And it changes us. It changes us from a 
species that simply lives off of the energy of the sun, a species that lives organically like every other species on earth into something entirely different, to a species that steals the fossilized energy from eons ago and uses it, harnesses it, makes it into people and buildings and electricity and computers. And to discuss this monumental shift, to show how we've changed from an organic economy to a mineral one, next few episodes, we're going to talk about that epochal shift, the Industrial Revolution, and we're going to see how coal is central to it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, please visit our website at historian.live. Uh, our friend Duncan Barton has been making images for every podcast. They're really great, and you should check them out. Also, we have detailed show notes now that have primary sources, graphs, images, links, and tons of stuff like that. Please look at it. I've been working quite hard to make the website uh, much more robust. And if you like the show, of course, please rate and review us on iTunes. You do not know how important this is to get a, you know, slightly unpopular podcast like mine into the ears of more people. If you really like the show, tell your local history nerd to listen to it. I think that they might like it if you like it. Uh, you should also share us on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media. If you're on Reddit, post about us on Reddit. I'm a little bit too shy to do it because it's my own podcast, but if you do so, I would be much appreciative. Thanks, as always, to Jonathan Lear, who made our wonderful music. You can find a link to his Bandcamp on our website, historian.live. And thanks especially to Duncan Barton, our illustrator, who's made all of the wonderful images. You can find links to his Instagram as well at historian.live. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you guys next week.